0: Hello and welcome to this week's podcast. We are so glad that you joined us today. This is Josh Carlson with Hilltop Community Church, and today we're going to continue along with Kurt in our Christmas series titled Hope. So go ahead and grab your Bible, open up to Psalm 39, and follow along with us as we get started. Good morning. Hello. Hello. (laughs) Hello. So I want to share a few things with you before we get into Psalm 39. Uh, the first one is, if you missed it, it's in your handout, but there's Christmas Eve services, one on the 23rd at 6 o'clock, and then two on the 24th, one at 4 o'clock and one at 6. Uh, there'll be a children's program at all three of those, um, and uh, all three will be candlelit services, uh, you know, the little electric ones, because we don't trust you with flames, Um <laughs> But uh, that, that, that'll that happen on those days, and so we'd love to have you come to one of those. The other thing is next Sunday, so Christmas is Saturday. The day after that, Sunday, you're all going to be thinking, do we really need to go to church? Um, and... I don't normally do this, but yes, you do. And the reason, the reason why is uh, a lot of them, but the main one is next Sunday will be Don's last Sunday on staff full-time, and he will be teaching us. And uh, you, we want to we come and pack the house and honor Don for who he is and what he's done in his years of service here. Um, he's going to stay on in uh, sort of an advisory role and work a few hours a month for us um, and uh, do some training with staff and then also be available to teach once a quarter. And so we'll still see Don um, but I think we'll see much less of him because Michelle has a lot of plans for Don, all the things he needs to get done, I'm thinking. Yeah, he just nodded his head yes. Um, so we'd love to have you come and do that. And then there'll be a, a uh, retirement party in February, and the, the works on that are still in the plans. We'll let you know more details when that arrives. But, uh, so please, come next Sunday, pack the house, and let's honor Don for his years of service here. Uh, this morning, what we're going to do is we'll be in Psalm 39. And uh, kind of the question I have for you there is, is Christmas more than warm feelings or longing to be with those we care about? Uh, we have a tendency to look at Christmas as uh, a very nostalgic time of year, and so the question is is Christmas just nostalgia, or is there some hope involved with this as well and when we think about the word nostalgia it's it 's a sentimental longing or wistful affection for the past, um, typically for a period or place with happy personal associations. Um, the Greek wor- roots of the word are, are there's a it 's a compound word which means to return home and pain uh, the Latin variant is is a word meaning homesickness and so uh, When Christmas rolls around, we long to be with the people that we love. We long to be in the places where we have good memories. And those are good things. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, I'm sure each of us has our own sort of Christmas memories or things that make us think immediately, oh, it's Christmas. Um, One for me is uh, I go over to my parents' house and my mom makes these little sugar cookies. They're cut out in the size of a polar bear and they're like this big. Um, And uh, she puts a little white frosting on them and then sprinkles powdered sugar on them. And the bear kind of looks like it has a, a fur coat. And then she puts a a green wreath around its neck and then two little red hot cinnamon dots go on the wreath and uh, every time I see or eat one of those cookies, that, that's Christmas with, with the Kizorkies. Um That just, it's, it's a good time. Um, and as as we're kind of growing up, we're, we're doing some of these things with, well, we're growing up, as our kids are growing up, I guess I'm growing up, um, but uh, as our kids are growing up, we're sort of doing some of these things with them. Becky made a whole bunch of gingerbread and sugar cookies, and we decorated them around the table, and she's not a much of a per- polar bear lover, but she loved goats, so she found a little goat cut out, and it had a wreath, it didn't have the red hot, so it was a little lacking, but no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Um, I love cinnamon, so that I, I just, I, it's a fun thing for me. Anyway, we have these feelings, um, and, and, these memories. Another memory for me as a kid, uh, I did not get to know my, uh, my grandfather on my mom's side, uh, my, my mom's dad. I didn't get to know him well. He died when I was pretty young. Um, and when he was alive, he lived in a different area. And then when he lived in the same area that we are, he had cancer. And so he just wasn't the man that, uh, that everybody talked about when I knew him, um, They say that I carry a lot of his mannerisms though. I I don't really know him that well, but they say I carry his mannerisms and uh, he had a proclivity for knowing where the best restaurant in town was and I may or may not be good at that too. Um, But uh, I just carry some of his mannerisms. But I remember one Christmas in particular, uh, there wasn't a whole lot under the tree and uh, grandma and grandpa drove down from Washington and I remember grandpa walking in with boxes of presents, just kind of like bringing in a box of presents and going back out to the cars and bringing in another box of presents and uh, he, he sort of made Christmas for us that year. And uh, you have memories like that, right? Of just family and 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 uh, good things. There's nothing wrong with those memories. They're good things. Um Those feelings, those positive feelings about our family, they they don't actually have the ability to save us or give us hope. Um, They're good things, but they aren't what saves us. And so what I'd like to do from Psalm 39 is I'd like to show you uh, what those who lived before Christ cried out for and how the advent of Jesus is the answer to those calls. And so in Psalm 39, uh, it's written by King David during a time of his life where he's very aware of the sin in his life and God's punishment of those sins. Um, and so our, our actions on earth they always have consequences. If we do the wrong thing, you you hurt someone, uh, you choose to break a law, you you sin. There's always consequences in this life for those. Uh, thankfully, the eternal consequences of those are paid by Jesus. But if you steal or cheat or spend all your money and can't pay the rent, there's consequences, right? And so what we do in our life on earth is always going to have earthly consequences. And David is feeling the repercussions of the sin in his life. The the, the burden of sin is heavy on him. And in Second Samuel 12, uh, this is after David has, he sees Bathsheba and he thinks, she's beautiful, I want her, but Uriah's in the way. And so he has Uriah killed and then he sleeps with Bathsheba and a child uh, is conceived in that process. And Nathan shows up to him, uh, the prophet Nathan, and he, he tells a story of somebody who's harming other people and taking from them things that, uh, that don't belong to them. They're, they're, he's, he's harming others. And David stands up and he says, that man deserves to die. And Nathan looks at him and he says, you are that man. And David immediately understands that he is found out and the gravity of his sin is on him. And Nathan says this to him. He says, this is what the Lord says. I'm going to bring disaster on you from your own family. I will take your wives and give them to another before your very eyes. And he will sleep with them in broad daylight. You acted in secret, but I will do this before all Israel in broad daylight. David responded to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied to David, and the Lord has taken away your sin. You will not die. However, because you treated the Lord with such contempt in this matter, the son born to you will die. Then Nathan went home and goes on to tell how that son died. And so most most theologians believe that David wrote Psalm 38, 39, and 40 directly after this. So he's very aware of his sin. He's very aware of the gravity of what he has done and how he's gone against God and God's ways, how he's harmed others, and the consequences of his sin are very clear to him. And it's from this place that he's going to cry out for help and put his hope in God. And so as we go through this today, I hope that you can do this, that you can kind of look at your past and you can say, this is the time and the place where the weight of my sin was so clear to me. Maybe you haven't done this yet. Maybe you need to do it today. The weight of your sin is very clear to you. And you understand that you cannot save yourself, but you need God's mercy. You need his grace. You need him to rescue you and provide remedy for your sin. And so maybe you need to do that today. Uh, Maybe you've already made that one-time act where you say, I trust that in Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, that the consequences of my sin were paid for and that I am now saved and a new person in Jesus Christ. Maybe you've done that, but there's still areas of your life where God is revealing to you that confession is necessary and repentance and changing the way that you think and the way that you live need to happen. And so I, I pray that God would reveal that to me, but he would also reveal it to you and that you would respond to the Spirit's leading. Um, We we say the word inspired, the the word inspired actually means to be visited by the Spirit. And so I pray that that the Spirit will visit you and me today and talk to us about the areas where we need to step in line with who God is and what he's revealed, that we could come under his authority and honor him for the power and position that he holds and also see that Jesus and this time of Christmas that we celebrate is the answer to all of our cries for help. So let me pray and then we'll read this together. So Father, we do, we come to you with an open heart and a willingness to be taught by you. Um, I I do pray that that is the case, that we come to you with an open heart and a willingness to be taught by you. And as we go through the scriptures, we're going to see this interaction of somebody who loves you, but has truly messed up and uh, their their cry, David's cry for help is so clear. And we see your son, Jesus, the advent of God in flesh. We see him as the answer to, to David's cry. May we put our hope in you, enjoy this Christmas season, love our family, care for our neighbors, but ultimately share the truth of what you've done in our own hearts and minds and with those around us as well. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So he says in Psalm 39, David says, I will guard my ways so that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle as long as the wicked are in my presence. I was speechless and quiet. I kept silent, even from speaking good, and my pain intensified. My heart grew hot within me, and I mused. A fire burned. And so, what David is doing here is he's revealing that his life is a mess. He tries to remain silent about it, but that only makes things worse. Silence intensified his anger about life's difficulties. And so he's, he's recognizing his sin and he's guarding his ways and he's holding his tongue and he says that I put a, uh, a guard on my mouth with a muzzle. That literally means a lip covering. It's not the things we put on right now. But uh, he's keeping silent, right? Um, The pain is on him. The weight of sin is over him, and he doesn't know how to respond. He's afraid that he may respond poorly, and so he keeps silent. He says, as long as the wicked ones, uh, that's that's guilty people, are in his presence. And if he's honest with himself, he can't speak because he's there. Because he's the wicked one. He's the guilty one. He says, I was speechless and quiet. I kept silent even from speaking good. Uh, that word good in the Hebrew means merry or pleasant. I, I'm I just, I'm so overwhelmed with what's happened. I, I don't want to say something negative, but I also don't know how to say anything good. And as he's going through this inner turmoil, it says that his pain intensified. He was thrown into deeper confusion. His, his heart, his inner self grew hot. He was in a rage and he burned with fire as he thought about the circumstances that he was in. He was mad at himself. He was overwhelmed by his sin. He was wishing he had done something different, maybe blaming others for what they uh, had done around him to cause this to happen. But his life is a mess. And some things stay the same. Um, humanity is still a mess. The idea that evolution or the progression of humanity uh, or the human race, it's a joke. The, The same issues, the same lies, the same ineffectual solutions have been tried over and over again. We are longing for grace that can only be found in God. We all want this answer. We all know that we're broken. If you're truly honest with yourself, you know the times that you've fought against God. You know the times that you've harmed the people. You say you love them and then you do something that hurts them. What is this? Why is it this way? You know the brokenness. And we're all longing for that answer. And so the first act of God's grace is when he opens our eyes to our need of him. In his grace, he, he steps into our lives and he says, it's a mess. And you need me. And he shows us our sin and he causes us to feel the weight of this sin. And once we realize that that's the case, David says, he says, then I spoke with my tongue. Verse four, Lord, make me aware of the end and the number of my days so that I will know that I am short lived. If in fact you have made my days just inches long and my lifespan is as nothing to you. Yes, every human being stands as only a vapor. Yes, a person goes about like a mere shadow. Indeed, they rush around in vain, gathering possessions without knowing who will get them. And so the next thing that he does is he recognizes the brevity and futility of his life on earth. A life is short and often lived for temporal comforts instead of eternal purpose. And so he's becoming aware of this. My days are short. I don't have a lot of time here on earth. I'm temporal. That word he says, every human being stands as only a vapor. It means a mere breath. You take one in and you let it out. and You take one in and you let it out. And in God's eyes, that's how long our lives are on earth. It's just a dot on the radar because we spend 60, 70, 80, 90 years here and then we spend eternity based upon the course of our lives here. Is it a course that's moving towards God and relationship with him, trusting in Jesus and receiving salvation from him? Or is it a course that's moving away from him, saying, I don't want you, God. I'll solve this for myself. I have the answers, and I will determine what's right and wrong. And the end of that course is one where we say, "You you spend all of your life moving away from God, and your eternity is without him. You spend your life here moving towards him, and eternity is with him. And you respond to this grace. David says, "Yes, every person goes about like a mere shadow, that means a transitory image, something that's not permanent." And so David realizes that he's not permanent here. The, the end will come." Uh, and, and then he says, "Yes, they rush around in vain, gathering possessions without knowing who will get them. And so he, he draws out that living for material possessions and the wealth of this earth, uh, it, it has no lasting meaning. We're all Americans. We love material things. Everything that you've ever bought has no lasting meaning. But our lives are headed in a direction. And so when our eyes are open to reality, they become aware that we are short-lived and transitory in this life. Then we see how futile living for possessions is. And so the second act of God's grace is showing us the scope of eternity and our need for God to act on our behalf. First, he shows us our our need of him and his salvation, and then he shows us the scope of eternity, that, that what we have here on earth it's it's short lived. It has great meaning and purpose, and God's put us here to bless others and honor him and glorify him by caring for other people. So there's great meaning in our life here, but it's just transitory. It's moving us towards a different destination. And so based upon this, what David says next, he says, now, Lord, I wait, what do I wait for? My hope is in you. What do I wait for? My hope is in you. And so this is the climax of the Psalm where David reminds himself of who he's living for. His hope or confident expectation is in God. And there's a couple of key words there. One is is wait, and that means to be tensed and ready um, the idea is that you're, you're, you're ready to spring. It has the idea, the word is actually to wait and ambush. And so the idea is that God wants us to live muscles tensed, ready for the next thing that he's going to do. And then when he does it, when he moves in our lives, we, we jump into action based upon where he's leading us. And then he says, my hope, and that's a confident expectation based upon God's character, is in you. You've done this in the past, and you've done this in the past, and I know that you love me, and I know that you care for me, and I know that you know everything about me. You know my sin. You know my brokenness. You know my rebellion against you. And in spite of all of that, you haven't left me. In spite of all of that, you you care for me and you come to me and you draw me closer into relationship with you. You care about me. I know that's who you are. And I know that even though I have messed up greatly, uh, you don't need me to clean myself up because you're the one who's actually going to cause me to be renewed. I behold who you are and I'm renewed. I look at who you are and what you've done, God, and that's what transforms me. Not my own efforts, not my own abilities, And so we should live muscles tense, ready to spring into action at God's leading with a strong resolve that God will act again as he has in the past. We expect God to act on his promises and take God-sized risks in accordance with his revealed plan. So we live our lives here on earth with meaning, with an understanding that God has us here for a purpose. And what he's done in the past is he's loved people, he's cared for people, he's rescued people, he's redeemed people, he's restored them to relationship with him. That's what he's all about. He's about drawing us out of our rebellion, paying for our sin, and causing us to be new creations who live in harmony with him and then with others. And so that's why I'm here. But he also has me here to then share that message with others. And so based upon God's plan that he's revealed, I'm going to be he muscles tense, ready to spring into action for the next thing that he has me to do. And so that next act of grace is God reminding us of his past acts of grace. We look at the past and we say, he's been gracious to me before. He'll be gracious to me again. And this is spurring us on to live a life that makes an eternal difference. Not living for just presents and possessions, but living for things that make an eternal, an eternal difference. And it's from this place that he says these words. He says, rescue me, verse eight, rescue me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the taunt of fools. I am speechless and do not open my mouth because of what you have done. Remove your torment from me. Because of the force of your hand, I am finished. You discipline a person with punishment for iniquity, consuming like a moth what is precious to him. Yes, every human being is only a vapor. So he says rescue, that means to save or deliver or to tear away from. Rescue me from my transgressions, my crime, my wrongdoing, my rebellion. Uh, We understand that, that we're actually slaves to sin apart from Jesus. That we're actually chained to death. We're literally chained to sin. And so he's saying, Rescue me. Tear me from those chains. Tear me from the transgression, the crime and wrongdoing and rebellion that's within me. Uh, don't make me the taunt of fools. He says, I, I love you, but my life is a mess. And even people who do not know you, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Fools do not fear the Lord. People who have no reverence for you, even they look at my life and they're able to say, That guy's a mess. I need rescue. I need to be torn from the wrongdoing that is within me. And then he says, I'm speechless. I don't open my mouth because of what you have done. And that phrase, you have done, it's you have made a way. God, I'm speechless because I didn't do it. I didn't fix the problem. You have made a way. There's nothing that I could say because it's all from what you have done. Then he says, remove your torment from me. It literally means to take your plague from me. And so thoughts of the Passover would be obvious for the Jewish reader. Uh, Remove your plague from me. Take away this plague. And so immediately the Jewish reader would think of the Passover and how the blood of the lamb was put on the doorpost of their house so that the angel of death would pass over them and God saved them from their iniquity. God saved them from their brokenness then the story of the Exodus then moves. And so they would have remembered how God broke them, tore them away from the chains of slavery and drew them out of Egypt. And in a real sense, what he did, tearing them from slavery in Egypt, he's doing in a spiritual sense, tearing us away from our transgression and our sin. And then he says these words, which for some of us might be hard to hear. Because of the force of your hand, I am finished. Um, And that word force is hostility, attack, or strife. Because of the hostility in your hand, I am finished, which means I'm coming to an end. And so one of the things that we realize about God is he hates sin. He hates it. And the reason he hates it is because he loves us. He looks at us and he says, you're my children and I made you. I designed you to be in my image. And when you sin, what you do is you harm another one of my children. And I hate it when you harm my children. I don't like watching my children harm each other. Um, I'd love to set up boundaries where you wouldn't do that. I'd love to actually put a heart in you so that you would love your fellow ch- my fellow children instead of harming them. And so that's why God hates sins. And so he says, because of the hostility of your hand, I'm coming to an end. And so it's like this picture of God squeezing David. His hand is on him and there's force and there's hostility And he's mad at David for his sin. And the the hostility is causing David to come to an end of himself. The weight of sin and God's hand on him. He finally says, okay, I feel it. And I'm not doing this anymore. I'm done doing things my own way. I'm done trying to stand on my own two feet. I'm done being foolish enough that the beauty of a woman and then having her would then cause me to experience life. I, I'm not living for that lie anymore. I'm going to be done harming other people. I'm actually going to live with your morality and your standards. And I, I feel this weight and I understand your hand on me, God, and I feel that pressure. And what it's teaching me is that I shouldn't try and call the shots. But that is the story of humanity. The story of humanity is God has made us in his image and he put us in a garden that we would be in peace, shalom with him, peace with him and peace with others. And that was his design. Be at peace with me and be at peace with others. And humanity says, you know what? Uh, this serpent came along and he told us that we could determine good and evil for our own and let's give it a go. And you don't have to be too intelligent to read a history book, read the news or look at your own life to realize that always ends up a mess when we try and determine good and evil for ourselves, it never turns out right. And so what David is doing is he's coming to that place where he feels that pressure on his life because of sin in God's hand. You have to understand that this is actually an act of love. When God reaches out and grabs David by the arm and he tells him, no more, stop it. And the hand is hard, might even leave a bruise. That's actually love. As he yanks him away from sin, that's love. Love. So the idea of live and let live, it's nonsense. Verse 11, you discipline a person with punishment for iniquity. And that word iniquity is for our our guilty and crooked way of thinking and living. Consuming like a moth what is precious to him. Yes, every human is only a vapor. Uh, I went to put on an old Christmas sweater this morning. I was gonna wear a nice green Christmas sweater. It wasn't an ugly one. Um, And uh, I put it on, I'm like, it still fits. I haven't gained that much weight. Um, And then I walk in and I'm gonna do my hair. uh, And I look in the mirror and there's holes in the sweater. And so apparently something got into the closet and decided it was gonna eat uh, the sweater. And uh, that's what David is saying. God is consuming the things that are precious to us in order to show us our need of him. Uh, the, The temporal things that we worship and think we need more of, God actually removes those from us in love to show us that it's only him And so from David's position of hope, he counts on God to rescue him from the punishment of his iniquity. And so to live a life of eternal difference, we must first be rescued from the punishment of our rebellious, criminal, and crooked way of life. God must pass over our sins with the blood of the Lamb so we are no longer held accountable for our broken thinking, speech, and behavior. And that's God's next act of grace. He pays the cost and rescues us from the devastation of the the sin that indwells our bodies. Jesus came to defeat the penalty and power of sin in our lives. He makes us aware of our brokenness, exposes our rebellion, convicts us of sin, and provides remedy for our plight. Those are all things that God does for us in love, right? He, He makes us aware of our brokenness. He says, I love you too much to leave you as you are. I love you as you are, but I love you too much to leave you as you are. I care too much to watch you wander around broken and confused. And so I need to make you aware of this. And then what I'm going to do next is I'm going to expose that you've been rebellious towards me. You've decided to determine good and evil for yourself rather than trusting me. And I'm going to convict you of the sin that's in your life. And then listen to me, I'm going to provide a remedy for the problem. And so David says these words, the the last three couple verses here. Hear my prayer, Lord, and listen to my cry for help. Do not be silent at my tears, for I'm here with you as an alien, a temporary resident, like all of my ancestors. Turn your angry gaze from me, so that I may be cheered up before I die and am gone. And you hear that, and you think David, you're maybe a little melodramatic. but his words here, he says hear, that means it's, it's the word shema in the Hebrew. It means to listen and act. God, listen and act based upon my prayer. Uh, don't, don't leave me here, but pay attention to my cry for help. Don't be silent or deaf at my weeping. I, I'm torn apart, God. I know the weight of my sin. I know my brokenness. I know I can't save myself and it's crushing me. I feel your hand on me, demonstrating all these things to me, punishing and disciplining me so that I will turn from my wickedness and then trust in you. I know all of that. So, God, hear and listen and act based upon my prayer. Pay attention to my cry for my help. Don't be deaf to my weeping. And the beautiful part about God is, He's not, He knows your tears. He knows when you feel crushed. He actually understands what it is to be crushed. And so the last thing David does here is he asks God to remedy his situation as one under the curse of sin. And so if you haven't come to this place, listen to this. God, I've sinned against you and you alone. We cry this. God, I've sinned against you and you alone. Who could save me? How will I escape the doom of my rebellious heart? I understand the end of my destiny as a sinner and it's not good. How do I get out of this? How will I ever be right and whole again? Lord, hear me, I need mercy. And you can imagine God in his, in his throne, in his heaven, from his heart of love, he hears his lost child and he says, I had a plan all along. I know your pain. I know your brokenness, your rebellion, and your sin. I know you fought with me and harmed the ones you love. I know you don't have a solution in and of yourself. Let me show you the plan. He says, Gabriel, my messenger, go and tell Mary. She's to bear a son, and his name will be Emmanuel. He will be God with them the prince of peace, the mighty God, the wonderful counselor, the everlasting father. He'll be the exact representation of the father, the light of the world, the world made flesh, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He'll be God joined to humanity to pour himself out, to be tempted, tried, and remain completely sinless. He'll gather those who seek me and who I've called to be my own. He'll be the way, the truth, and the life. He'll be falsely accused, beaten, mocked, whipped, and crucified. He'll die between two rebellious, guilty criminals, and thus my righteous hatred of sin, my complete, broken hearted contempt for how my children hurt each other, it'll be satisfied. Justice, mercy, and grace will be executed in one cumulative act of divine love. Go tell her the time is now, the waiting is over. I so love the world that I'm sending my one-of-a-kind son, Jesus, the Messiah, to end the curse of sin and death by carrying it on his shoulders. I'll crush him instead of them. Abraham believed in this promised son. Moses led the people to see their need of him. David cried out for him, and and the prophets proclaimed this day would come. Go, tell them the time is now. And that's what makes Christmas as special as it is. It's because we see all of history leading us to the birth of Jesus. All of human history and their rebellion and fighting against God. They're choosing their own way and their sin and their need of remedy and rescue from it. All of it leads to Jesus' birth. All of it leads to God joining us in humanity, a sinless son who would then die on our behalf to, to pay for the consequences of sin. And so it's difficult to fully appreciate the rescue and remedy that Jesus gives without understanding the depths of sin. And so what we don't want to do is we don't want to just cruise through this Christmas season with nostalgia, gift giving, family, and food. If that's all that Christmas is, it's a big miss. All those things, they're fine and good, but none can save us from the ruinous end of sin. And what we then have to come to acknowledge is that every person, each and every one of us will acknowledge our iniquity, our brokenness, our transgression, our rebellion, and our sin before God. Everyone will do that. Everyone will say, I am broken, I'm a rebel, and I've sinned against you. The question is whether we do so beneath the shelter of grace and mercy found in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, or by our own futile efforts. Do you want to stand before God and say, I rejected your son, but my own efforts are enough? It won't work. And so some of what Christmas calls us to do is recognize this about ourselves. Some of what Christmas calls us to do is to recognize our brokenness, to recognize our rebellion, to see our sin for what it is. And to feel the weight of it. It's crushing, ruinous weight. And to realize we needed God to act on our behalf, and he has. He has. He sent his only son, out of his love, he sent his only son to die on our behalf. He said, I'm gonna take the weight, off of this, the weight of sin off of your shoulders. I'm gonna take it off of your shoulders. I'm gonna take it off of your, every one of you. The weight of sin that is on your shoulders, I'm gonna take it off of you and I'm gonna nail it to Jesus on the cross. And it's gone. We don't ever have to talk about it again. Then I'm going to go a step further than that, and I'm going to raise this son of mine from the dead. He, he raised Jesus from the dead, and Jesus is vindicated by the Spirit. He's proven to be the Messiah. He's proven to be the one who's paid the consequences of sin through his resurrection from the dead. And the crazy thing about the Bible is, it says that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, He then actually puts in those who believe. He says, "I'm going to take that same power that raised Jesus from the dead, that same power that killed sin and death and raised him from the dead. I'm going to put it inside of you, and you are going to be my instruments. You are going." to be my vessels here on earth and through you I'm going to reveal the majesty of who I am to those around you. That's your purpose. That's your meaning. And so Christmas calls us to all of these things. And so as you think about applying this, what have you done with this lowborn king Jesus? Have you believed? Have you looked at it as Fairy tales and nonsense? Or have you seen it for what it truly is the historical picture of God's love? Jesus is not a person in a storybook, he's a person in a history book. And and you go, okay, well, what about this virgin birth? This sounds like nonsense to me. The language that's used when Gabriel shows up to Mary, he says that the power of the Most High will overshadow you. He says the power of the Most High will do something miraculous in you, and the virgin will become pregnant. And you go, well, that, that science can't do that. Well, no, it can't. But God can. If you have a God that's too small to perform that, then you don't have a God at all. And so what do you need to confess to God? Maybe it's unbelief. Maybe you need to confess to God that, that uh, man, I've been fighting against you because I, 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 I've made you too small. I've made you finite. I've made you human. I've made you confined, constricted by the limits of science, my own rationality. Those verses, 1 John 1, 9 and 10, what they say is, and I'm going to paraphrase, but if we confess our sin, confess means we agree with God. God, I agree with you that this is wrong. When I did this, it was wrong. When I thought this way, it was wrong. When I spoke this way, it was wrong. And and I agree with you, it was wrong. It's not by your design. It says that when we confess that he is faithful and righteous to cleanse us from all unrighteous and make us righteous again. And then verse 10 says, anyone who says they are without sin is a liar. And so those verses, they're they're sobering, they're stern. We all have things we need to deal with. We all have things that God is working on us, placing his hands on us, sometimes squeezing hard so that we could see our need. And those verses in Titus, I'm gonna read those with you. Titus two eleven. It says, "For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts, to live a sensible, righteous, to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. He gave Himself." for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and cleanse us for himself a people of his own possession eager to do good works proclaim these things encourage and rebuke with all authority let no one disregard you and so as you go through this Christmas season how can you remind yourself and others that Jesus is the only true hope and I think one of the simplest ways you can do this is you can share your story One of the simplest ways you can do this, and and maybe your kids don't know your story. Maybe you need to share your story of, this is the time period in my life where I lived without God, where I lived in opposition and rebellion to him, where I lived based upon my own understanding of what's right and wrong. And boy, let me tell you, it was a mess. But then God placed his hand on me and he showed me the gravity of my sin. He showed me my rebellion. He showed me my brokenness. He gripped me and he changed me. And I'm not who I was at that point in time. I'm someone different. Maybe your kids don't know that story. Maybe your grandkids don't know that story. That's one you need to share. And then another way to look at this is to write a short prayer of thanksgiving to Jesus for rescuing you and being the remedy for your sin. And so maybe you you just grab a card or maybe you like to use a phone, I don't know. But you write it down. God, thank you. I know who I once was. I understand the weight of my sin. I know my brokenness. In fact, God, I remember this period of my life where I'm living by my own understanding and what a mess, just hurting people that I love, thought I was finding life and temporal things, looking for possessions or experiences and they never, they never actually brought me fulfillment but you woke me up and I'm so thankful that you woke me up. And I thank you for rescuing me from breaking my chains uh, that tethered me to sin and for giving me new life, being the remedy for the brokenness that I used to experience. And I thank you that right now you, you, you live with me. And the, uh, that power that, that, that rose Jesus from the dead, it's inside of me. And it, can, it still convicts me of sin. It still shows me the places where I, I, I'm not in line with what you say is right. And, and you still love me by disciplining me and showing me a better way to live. And so I'm thankful that you're with me, God. And you just jot something down. Make it personal between you and him. And maybe that's what you copy a couple times and put in Christmas cards to your kids or your grandkids. I just wanted to share this prayer of thankfulness that I have for God and what he's done for me. Read it one more time. It's difficult to fully appreciate the rescue and remedy that Jesus gives without understanding the depths of sin. To cruise through this Christmas season with only nostalgia, gift-giving, family, and food is a big miss. Those things are all fine and good, but none can save you from the ruinous end of sin. We will all acknowledge, everyone will acknowledge their iniquity, transgression, and sin before God. The question is whether we do so beneath the shelter of grace and mercy found in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection or in the futile merit of our own efforts. What have you done with the lowborn King Jesus? Let me pray. God, as we approached you this morning with an open and willing heart, I pray that we keep that. An open and willing heart to be taught by you. I pray that we would be inspired, visited by your spirit to hear your voice in our own lives you speak to us through our word through your word you speak to us through those who know you but you also come and visit us as individuals and you reveal the sin in our lives and you you make us aware of your love and i pray that you continue to do that for each of us i also recognize that by asking you to do that it's like asking the sun to shine it's just what you do so this Christmas season, may we celebrate who you are and what you've done, the person and work of Jesus, the one of a kind, unique, only Messiah, the only one who can save us from the consequences of our sin and give us new life. We thank you that he is the rescue we've been waiting for and the remedy for our sin, the one who wages war against sin and death, and he does so through love and sacrifice praise you for that in jesus name amen thanks for tuning in today we hope this message brought hope and encouragement towards seeking god and knowing his peace if you would like prayer support you can text us or call us at 775-984-8787 join us next week as don bauman discusses how god offers hope for today and in eternity The dream is that Hilltop is a home for the growing family of God, and we are so glad that you are a part of the family.